You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. On November 30th, Queen's Health Sciences launched a digital collection of its new Sankaset research talks, creating an online home for powerful, compelling stories behind the health research happenings right here at Queen's University. And researchers offer a unique, intimate view into the passions and goals that drive their work in a series inspired by the French tradition of gathering at the end of the workday. The Sankaset series spotlights innovative research that is of universal interest to all Canadians, showcasing in engaging TED-style talks. Jane Philpot, Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences, championed the concept of Sankaset, and her vision is to showcase research to a wider Kingston community and across Canada with this new digital platform. And today, right here on Campus Beat, we have the pleasure of chatting with the first two speakers in the Sankaset series. First, we're going to chat with Dr. Mary Ann McCall, Professor in the School of Rehabilitation Therapy and Associate Director, Health Services Research and Policy Institute, followed by a chat with Dr. Chris Booth, Professor in the Departments of Oncology and Public Health Sciences and Canada Research Chair in Population Cancer Care. So let's dive right in. I'm pleased now to welcome Dr. Marianne McCall, who will chat with us today about her Sankaset talk entitled The Ten Stories, Intergenerational Conversations. Welcome to CFRC, Marianne. Thank you so much, Dinah. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for your time. Marianne, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work in the School of Rehabilitation Therapy right here at Queen's. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, I have been at Queen's almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. Um, I was an undergrad here in the 70s, and then I came back in the uh, early 90s to be the head of occupational therapy and uh, served as head for two terms, and then went over to the Center for Health Services and Policy Research. And um, so I've straddled those two offices, Mm -hmm. and I teach the occupational therapy students, but my research is in health services and policy. Okay, thank you very much, Marianne. Now, tell us about your 10 Stories project and the talk you delivered in the Sankaset series on this research. Okay, Um, well, I'll start with the Sankaset series because it was a marvelous opportunity uh, offered to me by uh, Dean Philpott uh, to reach an audience that I would not normally have the opportunity to reach with my research. It was an intimate gathering of about 40 people in the Tet Center and um, a, a lovely, a lovely occasion. Um, Chris and I both gave a talk that evening, each of us about 10, 15 minutes, and um, there, there wasn't a question period, but there was an opportunity to interact with folks afterwards and, and discuss the research. So I'm very, very grateful for that opportunity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, can we dig, dig a little bit more into what the 10 Stories Project actually is? We most certainly can. Um, 10 Stories Project emerged in a very peculiar way, it's um, it's not my normal research area. My normal research area is disability policy and occupational therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a little bit of a departure, but I was out with friends 
And uh, we were talking about, you know, caring for our mother or two of us who were caretakers for our mothers. And um, my friend said, um, she tells the same 10 stories over and over again. And I'm getting kind of tired of listening to them. Um, and, uh, you know, we all laughed and that was the end of that. But when I went away, I couldn't let that idea go. Were there really just 10 stories? And why those 10 and not some others? And why tell them over and over again? So the idea, you know, picked away at me until I finally um, started a research project, got a little bit of funding and began interviewing the adult children of aging parents who saw themselves as being in a caregiver role. Mm -hmm. And um, we asked them to tell us the 10 stories they felt that they were hearing from their aging parent. And um, the research is a product of that. So we've interviewed 12 people so far. We've got a, we've got a list of uh, more people to interview and just haven't gotten to them yet. Mm -hmm. But um, we've got, you know, well over 120 stories that we're analyzing, looking for themes, looking for um, commonalities or consistent messages. Our belief, of course, is that there's something important there that uh, the stories don't just get told over and over again because people don't remember having told them or are, uh, you know, losing their faculties, but rather because there's something important to say. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to figure out what that something is. So can you give us a little bit of insight on what some of these stories uh, that elderly people tell over and over might actually be? Can you give us an example? Yes, um, there are three examples on the YouTube video that's been posted from the San Cassette talk. If people really want to hear them verbatim. Okay. But um, what I can tell you about today is some of the themes that are emerging from the research. For example, there are a bunch of stories about seeking a better life for one's family, about you know immigrating in some instances, but also about you know, getting an education about hard work, about starting out with very little and making something of it, you know, those kinds of, of stories. Mm -hmm. There's another theme about um, upholding standards, um, dressing properly, setting the table properly, uh, keeping your home properly, you know, all, all those uh, things of, you know, what people think of us. Mm -hmm. so that's another one. There's another one about families sticking together, um, looking out for each other, um, loyalty, you know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, so those are just a few examples of the, the kinds of themes that seem to be emerging. Okay. And now, can we learn a little bit more about why these stories are told uh, and, and why the tellers are telling them? Yes, that's the that's the important question, Dinah. Mm -hmm. um, we think that what is happening is a product of the process of life review, which is a very well-known phenomenon that happens uh, in the latter parts of a person's life, that they review the totality of their life and try to reconcile their identity and uh, create a coherent whole. Um, resolve tensions, conflicts, you know, some of those kinds of things, make sense of their life, in other words. And one of the things that we think that is happening is that they are 
revisiting the values that shape their lives and wanting to pass them along to the next generation. Mm. Apparently, one of the things that happens in this process of life review is coming to grips with values that are now at odds with the contemporary culture. And, um, and so that would, there's a sense that there's a press to communicate those values before they're lost entirely. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Now you mentioned too that you you initiated this study by talking to caregivers, essentially the uh, storytellers' interlocutors. What can these listeners perhaps take away from these stories, or or should they be taking something away? Well, we we hope they will, and that's why we did the research. Mm-hmm. Um, people express distress about hearing the stories over and over again and find it alarming um, to think that, you know, this is the harbinger, early harbinger of, of dementia or that their, their parent is losing their grip. And so we're hoping with, with this research to, to find a new way to listen to those stories and to listen to them as a gift that is curated for us as the listener and selected to send us messages or or leave us with ideas that are important for our lives and our happiness and our flourishing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so overall, what do you find most exciting about the research, most fascinating? What's really surprised you most in the journey? Well, there are a ton of, of uh, exciting and surprising things, but to me, one of the things that is most interesting is out of the 10 stories that people tell us, often eight or nine will be from the, the, their parents' teens or 20s, the second or third decades of their lives. Mm-hmm. And this is compatible with what the research shows about life reminiscence, that that's the time when people focus on in the stories that they tell. And so that, that one little finding has helped to validate our sense that this is about the transmission of, of values, um, because that's such an important time in people's lives when many of the decisions are made that shape the rest of their lives and their values are tested and formed, mm-hmm. and their adult identity is uh, beginning to be uh, established. Hmm. Wow. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate these insights. Anything else to add before we close today, Marianne? Um, the only thing I would add, John, is that we're still collecting stories and we would love to hear from anyone who feels that they have heard or are hearing a finite set of stories from their aging parent. Um, you can reach us either on campus at extension 78019 or through the email um, your story at 10stories.ca. Um, so we would love to hear from people and we interview over the phone and it's quick and easy and fun. And um, yes, we'd love to we'd love to add people's stories to our research. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Folks, we've been chatting with Dr. Mary Ann McCall about her research and recent Sankaset series talk, The Ten Stories, Intergenerational Conversations. Thank you, Mary Ann, for joining us right here on CFRC. We really do appreciate your time. Thank you, Dinah, for your interest and for sharing our research with your listeners.
Welcome back to Campus Beat. We're now chatting with Dr. Chris Booth about his recent Sanka Set talk entitled The Emperor Has No Clothes, Finding Our Way Again in Cancer Care. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Donna. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much for your time. So, Chris, tell us a little bit about your research and clinical practice here at Queen's and the Kingston Health Sciences Centre. Sure. So I'm a medical oncologist, which means I'm a cancer doctor that gives chemotherapy. Um, Mm -hmm. And I split my time uh, between the cancer center at Kingston Health Sciences Center, where I treat uh, patients largely with GI cancer. So mostly stomach cancer, colon cancer, pancreas cancer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the other um, half of my time I spend at the Queen's Cancer Research Institute, where I lead a research unit um, that looks at really big picture issues about how patients access the healthcare system and how the healthcare system performs. And we explore issues of access, quality, equity, disparities, um, and uh, real world utilization of cancer therapies. Thank you. And now with so many paths one can take in medicine, how did you find yourself uh, in oncology and what attracted you to the research field, let alone clinical practice? Yeah, great question. So I enjoyed many areas of medicine throughout my training and actually had a hard time deciding what area to go into. I knew I was going to do something within the realm of internal medicine, which means, um, you know, internal um, body systems. Uh, And so you spend three years doing that. And then basically you pick an organ. I'm going to be a a cardiologist and focus on the heart or respirologist, focus on the lungs, etc. And it was actually a pretty last minute decision for me to become an oncologist. uh, And it had to do with a um, last minute clinical rotation I had at Princess Margaret Hospital in the outpatient cancer center. And literally within two days, I had this radical career change where I decided I wanted to be a cancer doctor. And that that moment um, was entirely driven by this very um, special and privileged relationship that oncologists have with their patients. It's, um, as you can imagine, it's a pretty pivotal moment in most patients' lives when they end up at the cancer center the first time. And mm-hmm. to be able to help someone um, walk that journey and navigate all of the, um, the elements of that care system uh, was a real privilege. And I knew that that was something I'd find very rewarding throughout my career. So it was really the patients actually that drew me into it. Okay, wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Now, if one in four Canadians are expected to die of some form of cancer, according to newly released statistics from the Canadian Cancer Society, what did these stats indicate about our current cancer care system that we need to know about, Chris? Yeah, so I think there's a few key take-home messages. One is that, you know, this is a disease that's going to affect all of us through close family members, friends, or even personally. So this is something that's worth, you know, thinking very deeply about. Um And I guess the next kind of part of that is, you know, what kind of cancer system do we want for for ourselves and for our loved ones? And so I think, you know, arguably, I think the simple answer is we would want a cancer system that delivers compassionate care. It delivers treatments that makes a difference. And it's a system that is accessible to all patients within the Canadian health system context. So that actually Mm -hmm. kind of leads to you know, the research that I do, which is uh, trying to understand using population level data, we have a lot of, you know, anonymous data from the Ministry of Health or from OHIP or the Ontario Cancer Registry, where we can track through the cancer system, how patients are treated in the real world, identify things that work, things that don't work. And I have an interest in, you know, in in making sure that, um, I mean, I guess another way of phrasing it is kind of the two core missions of my research program and kind of things that I'm passionate about promoting within the cancer care realm is number one, um, imagining a health system, uh, a global health system where 
Um, where you live does not influence your care and a system in which all patients with cancer have access to the treatments that we know make a really big difference. And there are a number of treatments, quite a number that make a huge difference in the lives of our patients. So that's kind of one core mission of, of the work we do. The other is that, and this, this, that, that, that first mission probably won't, won't surprise any of your listeners. The second part of the mission though might be quite surprising to listeners in the general public um, because they might have no idea this goes on. But the second part of my mission is to ensure that people with cancer, I guess the flip side to kind of the other mission, that ensure that people with cancer don't get given treatments that are not gonna really help them. And in fact, because they don't really help them and they have side effects might actually cause harm might cause side effects, might take away meaningful time because they're waiting in the chemotherapy clinic for me because I'm running late or they're spending five hours in the treatment unit or they're in the emergency room with vomiting. So we wanna think very carefully about making sure that patients get the treatments that make a really big difference. And we wanna make sure that the treatments that we have that have marginal or no benefit that we think long and hard before we start using those routinely. Mm -hmm. And now with these ideas in mind that you've just talked about, can you tease out for us a bit more about, uh, about some of the challenges and solutions in cancer care that you talked about in your Sankaset series uh, discussion? Yeah, I think so. One of them is I think we have to be honest within our community, um, the, you know, the oncology community, but also, you know, and have more uh, frank discussions with our patients and with the public about some of the limitations of cancer care. I think we need to celebrate the treatments that make a big difference mm -hmm. and advocate and lobby and make sure that all patients have access to that. But I also think we need to show some humility and recognize that some of the treatments that we have that we use every day just are not very good. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the steps towards uh, rectifying that is talking about this, but also taking the time in the cancer center to really clearly describe, and this is generally in the incurable realm, okay, when, when patients have incurable cancer and, you know, the stakes are high, right, time is short. Um, you know, survival might be measured in months for these patients, and they want access to treatments that's going to help them live longer um, lives with better quality of life. And a lot of them probably are not interested in spending time in the cancer center and getting treatments that's just going to make them sick, mm -hmm. but not help them either live longer or live better. And disturbingly, you know, some of the treatments that are pretty standard practice all over North America don't help patients live longer or better lives and obviously have side effects. So I think we need to start by just having this conversation. And, um, you know, going back to the basics, and I think if you speak, uh, you know, clearly about these issues and don't use fancy medical jargon and, and kind of statistics, most patients are pretty practical and pretty common sense, and they actually can remind the oncologist what our priorities should be, because we get, I think, sometimes drawn into the hype and the science and the new, the new and latest cancer drug. But, and some of those drugs have a big benefit and we should be using them, but some of them have modest benefits. And I think having the conversation with patients um, and taking the time to clearly understand that will help us remember you know, what patients value, recognizing that no patient is gonna be the same as another. Everyone's preferences and values will differ, but I think our job is to maybe do a better, um, uh, you know, better do, do a better job of explaining what the benefits and risks are of these treatments so that patients can make an informed decision. Okay, thank you. Now, as an oncologist, uh, to our listeners out there, do you have any advice for listeners who, who may be living with cancer right now or, or caring for someone with cancer about how they might be able to talk to their doctor about uh, a good treatment plan? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the first thing is to really, um, you know, there's 
it's really hard. I see patients all the time who, you know, these are intense conversations. It's an overwhelming amount of information. And so one thing is to, you know, uh, feel empowered to ask questions, write a list before you go in, because it's often easy to forget. And there's no stupid questions, right? We've all asked the same questions before. And so they should ask questions that are on their mind. So feel empowered to seek information, ask questions. I think the next thing is to, you know, really clearly ask the oncologist, you know, is this cancer curable or not? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's okay if the doctor says, I don't know, because there are patients that are in the gray zone where we don't know. But I think it's worth the patient knowing, is the goal of treatment here to increase my cure rate? Or is this cancer not curable? And then the goal of treatment is in the palliative setting to help me live a longer life um, and maybe a better life with improved quality of life, but not necessarily cure it. Um, yeah, yeah, there we go. Um, so, you know, ask questions, clarify the intent of treatment. Is it to increase cure rate or not? And then to ask very clearly when the doctor outlines, well, we have this treatment and this treatment to say, well, is this going to help me live longer? And if so, roughly how much? And if it's not going to help me live longer, will it improve my quality of life? If not, you know, what are the side effects? And so I think having those very basic conversations um, are really important. Okay. Thank you for that sage advice. And now, uh, going back specifically to some of the things that you talked about in your Sankaset series discussion, uh, what can we learn about, about cancer care in other systems in other societies globally that might inform our view of how cancer care is undertaken here in Canada? Yeah, so this is something I'm really interested in, Don. It stems from, I had a sabbatical um, about six years ago now, and our family, we moved to India, um, and we lived in South India, and I worked at a huge government cancer hospital there, and it was, you know, a huge a transformational experience for, for our family and also for my career. And it became apparent that, obviously, um, you know, cancer in many of these countries was not really recognized as a major problem 20 or 30 years ago. But as there has been epidemiologic transitions in many of these low and middle income countries, um, non-communicable diseases, so things like diabetes, cardiovascular disease and cancer are now huge problems in these emerging economies. And there's not necessarily the infrastructure here to deal with a lot of these complex cancer treatments. So um, there's many things that, uh, you know, Canadian cancer systems and oncologists can, can provide advice uh, to these emerging health systems, but there's an equal number of things that we can learn from our colleagues in low resource settings. And they have an overwhelming number of patients. And so they've had to become very creative in the way that they deliver care. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, uh, you know, as I talked about in, in my Sanka set talk, in many ways they deliver care that is more patient centered than we do. Um, and because of the huge patient volumes and numbers, they've had to be more creative in the way that they give care. They're often more efficient. Mm -hmm. um, and in some ways they don't have the luxury of running clinical trials to detect trivial benefits. Um, you know, the, the stakes are so high there and the resources are so scarce that if they're gonna invest in a clinical trial or a new cancer therapy, generally it's gonna be something that's meaningful for patients. Mm -hmm. um, whereas maybe in these high resource settings, we, uh, you know, we have more resources and we can, you know, we can investigate drugs with treatments that are maybe very, very small benefit. And, and so I think we can learn some efficiencies both in the clinical care but also in um, the uh, in the research ecosystem from our colleagues in low and middle income countries. So this is kind of the, the idea of bi-directional learning, which is really kind of one of the core tenets of global health. Okay. And I guess my last question would be, what are the costs and benefits of uh, pharmaceutical 
company's influence in cancer care, given that a lot of the clinical trials, for example, might be run by some of those very same pharmaceutical companies? How does that influence uh, people's access to medication that they really need or that the medication that they really ought to have? Yeah, so this is a huge issue in our field. And I mean, I guess I'll start by saying, you know, I've got pretty strong feelings about this and I really have nothing to do with the pharmaceutical industry and that's been a conscious choice. Having said that, they are valuable partners in this system. You know, a lot of the really good drugs we have come from work and clinical trials done by drug companies. So we need them as part of the system. The problem is I think the pendulum has swung too far and they have far too much power in the system. Mm -hmm. um, they largely direct the research uh, uh, agenda because of, their dollars and their ability to fund research. And so, uh, you know, how do we solve that? Well, we, we as a society need to decide that we wanna have public funds going into health research. And so we need to probably, if you look at the proportion of dollars relative to GDP that uh, Canada invests in medical research, it's pretty low compared to many other peer countries. Mm -hmm. So we need to better balance the research envelope for funding to ensure that we can do studies that are not necessarily of interest to drug companies. So I think that's one thing. The other is that, you know, drug companies make a lot of money and, you know, I'm sure the people that work at drug companies, they also probably want to make the world a better place. But at the end of the day, the primary goal of drug companies is to make money. Mm -hmm. And the primary goal of the health system is to deliver care that improves the lives of patients. So there's an inherent conflict there. And I think we need to at least recognize that conflict and make sure that we are mindful of their influence, both in the research agenda and also in advertisements and in interactions with physicians and oncologists and try to at least take some of the power back to ensure that we value the contributions of drug companies to medical research and medical care, but that we retain kind of ownership and leadership of the space and make sure that it's always the patient's interest first. Thank you very much. Anything else to add, Chris, before we're fi we finish today? No, I think this, is, this has been a great conversation. Thanks, Don. I really appreciate kind of your interest in, in the work that we're doing. And, uh, you know, something I really want to do is to try to take this message, you know, to the public and the patient community. So very grateful for your time. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Folks, we've been chatting with Dr. Chris Booth about his recent Sanka Set series talk, The Emperor Has No Clothes, Finding Our Way Again in Cancer Care. Interested listeners are encouraged to visit the new Sanka Set digital series website to freely access these research talks. Dr. Marianne McCall and Dr. Chris Booth. Their talks can be watched at healthside.queensu.ca slash research slash 5A7. Thanks for joining us here on Campus Beat, Chris. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks, Donna. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.